1: this is the starship's over everybody welcome hello and welcome to oral delights showing Number 58 back into the new year now and a new swing of things i hope everyone is fine and dandy Just going to give you a little heads up of what's happening in today's show. We have the editorial by my good self. We have a little bit of poetry by a new gentleman called O.G. Clark. Fact, article day is by Amy H. Sturgis. Fantastic, Amy. Main fiction comes from you by Ian Watson. We have a sofa notes update by Mark Bowman and Mrs. Bowman. There you go. We have a new titles section in there today. There's been lots happening over on new titles. It's been popping through my door over the Christmas holidays. So I've built them all up and we've got a nice section on there on new titles. And we have the second of the third part of Temptation. Does that make sense? Of David Brin's Temptation. We have part two of this three-part serial, should I say. So I hope you'll stick around and I hope you'll enjoy the show. <laughs> So we'll jump straight in with the editorial, and I'm going to call this editorial Uncertain Times. And it's just, you know, this new year, and, and it's all to do with not really just kind of my, kind of the starships over finances, but it's just those uncertain times in the kind of what's happening in the, the, the world at large, you know what I mean? Just before Christmas, there was a podcasting company called Poddango. I don't know if anyone's heard of it or not or, but they went at the wall. And what was actually quite str- worrying and really upsetting, to be quite honest, if you're a kind of podcast, uh, like myself, you know, and had hosted your files over there, they literally had about four days to sort themselves out, sort out all their material and get it uploaded somewhere else or it would be deleted. You know, and you know, the RSS would be gone and deleted. And if that happened, Starship over, you know what I mean? That's quite, you know, and this is it's happening there now to to other people, you know, other communities out there. That's just like not a nice place to be in, you know. And you can't really blame Podango, you know, they've tried the best. They just certainly don't want to go out of business, you know, from what I've been listening in, the kind of the, the atmosphere, the podosphere atmosphere, you know, everyone talking about them. They are genuine guys who just, you know, unfortunately this thing's happened to them. And like I say, if that happened to Starship Sofa, do you know, my files are basically, they're on the website, and but the actual audio files are stored at Libsyn. Now, I think I'm, you know, it's all kind of quite complicated for me, this. Since moving over to kind of the own custom site, I think I've got my own RSS feed. You know, it's not really... RSS, like Libsyn's it's, it's kind of my own, my own so hopefully, you know, with moving transporting everything over to the new site as well, because what the intention is to do is to leave Libsyn and just host my files on my server do you know what I mean, it's kind of one of these unlimited servers and it's all, it was pushed by WordPress, so fingers crossed it should work do you know what I mean, but in uncertain times, do you know what I mean I'm just feeling what would people's reaction be if, you know, someone, because it is like a community, you know, we'll keep on harping on about this, but all of a sudden if, it, if it's gone, this would be a strange, you know, if there was no sort of Starship survive, if there was no escape pod, you know, all of a sudden you're kind of just cut off from your friends who you've, you've built up and known. And, you know, going kind of into the real world, hasn't the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, haven't they come out with, they're going to go... And cut it down, not to, I think it's every two months now, magazine coming out. So from once a month, that's now, you know, changed and, you know, you can. You, everyone knows because every every time, you know, the kind of, the figures come out, the magazines, all the kind of print copy magazines, they're just kind of still dropping and dropping and dropping. But now it's, you know, this kind of, like you say, these uncertain times are, are, are creeping into kind of the digital world as well and... You know, it just, you never know. So it's always been, you know, hopefully in Starship so far, was to really kind of finance it itself, you know. And we get the advertising, and to be quite honest, the advertising's nice, but I can't say it lasting, you know, in these times, you know. It's people, first thing they're going to start cutting back on is kind of spending money on advertising. And if that goes, that goes, you know, it's nice while it lasts if it doesn't. What basically my model of was to kind of always have like the subscription, you know, and it's like you say it's there for anyone who wants it. And then hopefully that's always going to be there to kind of at least carry Starships over forward in kind of financial terms, not having to rely on, you know, advertising. It's, It's much nicer and it's much easier if we all just kind of stick together. And at the moment, I think there is round about 22 monthly subscribers so it's not not it's not a lot but it's you know it's kind of it just helps out you know so that's one good thing you know and i try my best to kind of if there's a to to give something to people who want to kind of come over to the kind of the private show as well so fingers crossed in these uncertain times you know Starships Over will kind of plow ahead still and still look to the future like i say in terms of in my mind wanting to keep on doing it, that's still as strong as ever. And the back catalogue of work we've got lined up, ready to go, that's still going. You know, there's nothing can kind of stop in that kind of respect. But it's just you. Sometimes you never know. Do you know what I mean? Like, you say what happened a few months ago, or probably about six months ago, when Starship Silver got hacked and the the site crashed down. Do you know, these these kind of things and The way, you know, if hell if Lipson was to go all of a sudden and give two or three days notice, you know, how would we cope? No idea, to be quite honest. But fingers crossed, there's fine people that listen to the show will certainly help out. (laughs) So there, let us know what you feel in these kind of uncertain times. Is this credit crunch creeping into the digital age? Is the likes of, say, my show and Escape Pod putting pressure on you know the the kind of outside magazines that the hard copy pr- print magazines is, is the are we are we helping them Are we kind of hindering them you know are we kind of are they fighting against us give us some thoughts over at the forums or send us an email starships over at gmail.com be very nice to hear your views <laughs> So, I think, after all that little ramblings there, I think it's best if we get into a little bit of poetry. And it comes tonight from O.J. Clark. Give you a little heads up on Mr. O.J. Clark. Gary Osgood Clark, born November 1945, in, born in a small rural town of Norfolk. And he's lived in California ever since, for 25 years in the San Francisco Bay Area. And finally moving over to Davis where his son grew up and where he's worked for the last 25 years as a library assistant at the University of California before he retired. As the Clark says, after many rejection slips, a short nature poem of mine was published in the Big Sur Gazette in 1979. More rejection slips followed, but so did acceptance slips. Eventually, two chapbooks of his poem saw print, Letting the Eye to Wonder and Seven Degrees of Something, in 1990 and 1991 respectively. These were pretty much mainstream poems. But as one reviewer too, Mr. Clark's work recently discovered a few seeds of speculative poetry can be found among them. And today's narration is by Julie Davis, and actually, Julie is being a little bit greedy because hasn't she narrated the second part of David Brin's Temptation? And not only that, if you pop over to SFF Audio, you can actually hear Julie Davis and Julie's very own normal, natural voice. Yes, a talky-talky voice, totally different. (laughs) Yes, Julie even tries a little bit of Geordie accent. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much, Julie.
2: Again, The Night Too Deep by Geo Clark. One should never be left alone in a vacuum, a speck in time and space. Objects appear where nothing was before, spectral planets so like home. You hear the sound of rain pitter pattering upon the outside hall, but the viewports don't back up your ears, the stars dryly shining, The warm smell of fresh bread baking replaces that of stale oxygen. Metal walls softening. An olfactory illusion in this freeze-dried, squeeze-tube world. You dream of her touch once again. Hands massaging your tired neck muscles. Arms encircling your chest. Whisper breath in ear. Silken hair against your stubbly cheek. There's a metal aftertaste in your mouth, perhaps from blood or gunpowder that could be real, or just the special effects of the dreamworks the scenario never played out. In the darkened command center, the ghost of someone reflected in the front viewport. bone white hair, blackened eye sockets, a permanent sneer at the corner of its cracked, dead lips.
1: There you go, I will certainly put a link on to Mr. O.J. Clark's site. Do pop over there, say hello. A new poetry writer on board the Starship Sofa. Guess who's next? It's Amy Hurt Sturgis with her fact, Early Utopia. So Amy, what have
3: you got there? Hello, SofaNots. In his well-respected 1960 survey of the science fiction genre, New Maps of Hell... Kingsley Amos said, quote, Though it may go against the grain to admit it, science fiction writers are evidently satisfied with the sexual status quo. What I'd like to do today is to look back, way back into the history of the genre, and talk about five works that contradict this idea. Long before Hugo Gernsback had coined the term scientific fiction, women were using what would become the genre to make political statements about the sexual status quo in their societies. I'd like to introduce you to five women who wrote utopian science fiction to communicate their messages not only about feminism, but also about what it means to be human. The first lady I'd like to discuss is Annie Denton Cridge, who lived from 1825 to 1875. Hey, I did say I was going way back. She was born in the UK, but she spent most of her adult life in the United States, where she immigrated in 1842. Like many thinkers of the late 19th century, Annie embraced the three S's socialism, spiritualism, and science. This heady combination of ideas led her to be quite the eclectic gal, and she became an abolitionist, a medium, a women's rights activist, and an advocate of free love, among other things. Ms. Cridge's contribution to genre fiction came in 1870 with the publication of her feminist utopian novel, This Title's a Killer, Man's Rights, or How Would You Like It? The novel unfolds as a series of dream visions in which the narrator is transported to Mars The Martian society is the exact inverse of the one that Cridge herself experienced. So, Mars is ruled by serious, thoughtful, reasonable women, while the men of Mars are kept at home in a sphere of domesticity. The women are free to pursue power and careers, while the men do the child raising and the homemaking. The women wear sensible clothes, while the men are caught up in a series of fashions that are both difficult to wear and inhibiting, as well as downright degrading. But Cridge is not making fun of the Martian men. She's suggesting that they are in a pitiable circumstance. All in all, man's rights becomes a rather subtle work of political philosophy, Rather than suggesting that the world would be just great if women could run things and men could be oppressed, Cridge suggests, through her unfolding story of Mars, a more humane, or should I say Martian, solution to the problem of gender equality. Martian women prove to be interested in the issue of Martian men's rights, and a revolution of sorts occurs in the society. It's interesting how she lays this out. Part of the solution, she suggests, is technological. As automation, as industrialization makes available devices that save time, that do things more efficiently, then, in fact, a lot of the drudgery that falls to Martian men is lifted, and men can pursue things like education and career. The other solution she suggests is intellectual. It requires a revolution in the way that Martians think. For example, she writes about the problem of vice through the example of prostitution. She shows how the Martians change their laws so that the prostitutes, who are of course men, are considered not criminals but victims, and the real criminals are their clients, in this case women. In fact, she gives quite a vivid, and eyebrow-raising at the time, account of the overnight sting operation that occurs once this law goes into place and arrests are made of the women clients who are seeking uh, to use prostitutes. Of course, the entire Martian example is a metaphor for Cridge's own time. Being able to discuss the politics of Mars and to show how, eventually, Mars becomes a society of gender equality enabled Cridge to talk about the society of her own time and the politics of her own time in a very compelling way. Ten years after Man's Rights came a more technologically sophisticated feminist utopia, that is, Mizora by Mary E. Bradley Lane. Not much is known about Lane herself, but we do know that Mizora was first published in 1880 and 1881, serialized in the Cincinnati commercial, and then it appeared as a book in 1890. The full title of the work is Mizora, a Prophecy, a manuscript found among the private papers of Princess Vera Zorovich, being a true and faithful account of her journey to the interior of the earth with a careful description of the country and its inhabitants, their customs, manners, and government. In writing Mizora, Lane took advantage of the hollow earth theory that suggested there could be, quite literally, worlds within our world. The narrator is an inhabitant of our world, but through the czarist regime in Russia, she is exiled to Siberia. She escapes and finds herself stumbling upon the world of Mizora. In Mizora, men are not allowed. Sorry, guys. But neither are brunettes, so I wouldn't be there either. It's a world of blonde ladies who live quite a technologically superior life for 1880-1881, in that they have video phones and chemically prepared artificial meat, and the women reproduce asexually through parthenogenesis. No men are needed. Lane uses the world of Mizora to criticize a number of the conventions in her own society, which she finds to be problematic. Um, most notably, the idea that women cannot participate in uh, the political sphere. Through Mizora, she shows that women are not only capable, but the world that they might create could, in fact, be superior to the one that they inhabit. In her day, she not only took aim at some of the big ideas, for example, criticizing the union of political power and military power, but also at some issues very close to home. She came from a period of time in which tight corsets were the fashion. She made a point of observing that in Mizora, narrow waists were considered to be a disgusting deformity. So, once again, a 19th century woman using science fiction in order to make political statements about her own society. The third novel I'd like to mention is New Amazonia, A foretaste of the Future by Newcastle journalist Elizabeth Corbett, which was published in 1889. In this novel, much like the better-known Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, the main character wakes up many years in the future. In the case of this book, the narrator is a woman, and she wakes up in the year 2472, to discover that the suffragette movement not only led to women's voting rights, but eventually to women taking over Ireland completely and turning it into a political utopia. The narrator doesn't travel forward in time alone. She goes with a male companion, and so both of them explore this new Ireland of the Amazonians, and they have very different reactions to what they see. The female point-of-view character quite likes the world that she discovers in the future, a world in which women grow to be seven feet tall, living for hundreds of years, though never looking over 40, practicing vegetarianism, euthanasia as well, and dominating all aspects of public and private life. Perhaps not surprisingly, her counterpart, her male companion, isn't quite as keen on this world because it treats him as a second-class citizen. And eventually, his inability to uh, connect and assimilate to the culture leads the Amazonian leaders to find him insane. Eventually, both make their way back to their original time period. But it's clear that for the main character, this is not a happy homecoming. A decade after New Amazonia appeared, U.S. author Anna Adolf wrote *Arctique*, a story of the marvels at the North Pole. This book shared some similarities with its ancestors. For example, it was also a feminist utopia. It was also a story that bought into the hollow earth theory and suggested that there was a lost race living inside of the planet. The novel begins with a woman creating a flying craft, sort of hybrid balloon and airplane, in order to go to the North Pole. There she discovers a group of people who call themselves the Ark, thus Arctique. This isn't, however, a world like New Amazonia, of female domination, it has much more in common with Cridge's Man's Rights on Mars, a world of gender equality. In their crystal world beneath the ice, the Ark are telepaths, and in fact, the main character develops telepathy as she lives with them. They also practice Christianity, and in fact, their faith informs some of the egalitarianism of their society. So in a way, this is also a work of religious utopianism. The Ark also have developed a quite high level of technology. Before the adventure is through and revealed to be actually a dream, the Ark and the main character encounter a meteorite from the moon and encounter lunar people who are not the folks you would want to have over for dinner. But Adolf makes her point by envisioning a world in which the sexes coexist in peace and harmony and create a vastly superior world. The last work I want to mention is, I think, the most compelling, and that is Her Land by the U.S. novelist, lecturer, and social reformer, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Gilman lived from 1860 until she took her own life, in her words, choosing chloroform over cancer, in 1935. And she is perhaps best known for her semi-autobiographical work of psychological horror, The Yellow Wallpaper. Herland tells the story of a three-man expedition that discovers a lost world of women, which the men come to call Herland. The women in this culture didn't start out to create an all-female society. Their ancestors were cut off by war and geography from the rest of the world 2,000 years previously. Genetically, as well as physically isolated, the women eventually mutated and became capable of asexual reproduction. The world that they found is really a remarkable one, fueled by scientific understanding of not only technology, but also botany, biology, and the social sciences. For example, their understandings of language and their theories of education are quite sophisticated, even in today's standards. The women are physically fit, mentally sharp, and possessed of a remarkably long-term view of their own efforts, whether that be in the genetic engineering of plants for their foodstuffs, or the rearing and training of their young. What I think is particularly interesting about this book is the way that Gilman portrays the three men who encounter her land. All three are welcomed, treated as honored guests, and eventually brought on board as husbands to her land wives in order to reintroduce sexual reproduction into this community. One of the men becomes thoroughly convinced of the superiority of her land. Not only the gender equality that is shown there, but also the elimination of problems such as poverty, illiteracy, warfare, even cruelty to animals. At the end of the book, he elects to stay. Another of the characters has a very difficult time adjusting to the idea that the things he had thought of as naturally feminine or womanly were actually cultural conventions of his particular time and place, and perhaps more imposed than naturally evolved. He is eventually banished from her land for attempting to rape his wife. The third man, the narrator, is sort of an everyman and falls between the extremes of the other two characters, which makes it all the more poignant when he finds himself increasingly embarrassed when trying to describe the world that he came from, when he finds it falling short of the unpolluted, nonviolent, intellectual world of her land the book ends with him preparing to take his wife back to the world that he had left. Gilman followed up Her Land with the book With Her in Our Land, the sequel, in which we follow the woman from Her Land into our world. By immersing the reader first so deeply into Her Land, Gilman manages to make the sequel a very vivid dystopia in which the reader feels almost like a sociologist studying an alien species, when in fact the reader is actually encountering our own world. And I think it's an important point to make that a lot of the concerns Gilman has, whether they're about education or the environment, are still relevant today. And so we see women authors taking on politics through science fiction, discovering lost worlds, delving into a hollow Earth, or even going to Mars in order to create utopias that would shed light not on worlds that could be, as much as on the worlds that the authors themselves experienced. Two of these works are still in print, Mizora by Mary E. Bradley Lane and Her Land by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I hope you've enjoyed my whirlwind tour of five classics of early feminist utopian science fiction. I'll catch you next time for more Genre History.
1: Amy, I hope you had a lovely Christmas and New Year holidays. Thank you so much for getting this to me. And look forward to a full show by Amy, taking over the reins of the Starship's Over while I have my little holidays. (laughs) Go nowhere, but you know. Amy, thank you so much. So, main fiction tonight, we are going to bang straight into that. It comes from Ian Watson. Give you a little heads up on Mr. Ian Watson. Ian Watson was born in 1943. British science fiction author. He currently lives in Northamptonshire, England. His first novel, The Embedden, won The Pricks Apollo in 1975. A prolific writer. He has also written the novels Miracle Visitors, God's World, The Jonah Kit, and Files of Memory, and many collections of short stories. Watson is credited as the author of the screen story of the motion picture AI Artificial Intelligence. In 1980, Watson and Michael Bishop wrote the first transatlantic sci-fi novel collaboration, Under Heaven's Bridge. And guess how they did it, using typewriters and the postal service. Fantastic. Look out for some stories by... Michael Bishop, coming soon as well. Some great stories, to be quite honest. He has also written a series of novels tying into the Warhammer 40,000 line of games. And due from Ian Waits Newcom Press. Remember, Ian Waits is the writer that had a short story, Gift of Joy, that was in the... British Science Fiction Awards last year. Yes, well, Ian Waits has his own Newcom Press. Now, I don't know if it's Newcom Press is Ian's own little kind of business or if it's part of the British Science Fiction Association, but Newcom Press, you know, a newish publisher of several extremely well-received anthologies such as Celebration, and that was actually to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the British Science Fiction Association, Myth Understandings, and Subterfuge. A new compress will publish Ian Watson's book at the EasterCon in Bradford over Easter 2009. A story or a book called The Beloved of My Beloved, a book of demented and hilarious stories, simultaneously erotic and anti erotic in their satirical flights of fancy by Ian Watson in collaboration with Italian surrealist SF author Robert Qualia. This is probably the only complete sci fi book co authored by two writers with different mother tongues. There you go. This story today is narrated by our good friend, Mr. Kenny Park. And in these times, these uncertain times, if everyone's still walking around with a Kenny Park guarantee, you'll have to let us know how, if it's worth anything or not. Kenny, you're a star. Thank you for narrating this. Kenny, if no one, if not many people know about it, Kenny was the gentleman who came with myself and Kieran over to France and was actually the TV company, owned the TV company who did the video work for the interview with Michael Moorcock. So, Kenny, thank you so much for that once again. So, the
4: Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Looking Down on You by Ian Watson. They have to be perfectly safe. That's what Trevor Pears said, nodding at these sloping windows, a self-teasing vision of dread in his voice. They must test the glass, Andrew agreed, exhibiting similar queasy relish. The two Britons spoke softly, yet one of their German hosts, portly Hans Peter, immediately related how local schoolboys who came up the tower on trips with their teachers would generally throw themselves spread-eagled upon the slanting planes of glass out of bravado, hanging there, staring down, a 180 metres down, 600 feet, suspended by a centimetre of tough glass over an abyss. To Andrew, the distance to the ground below seemed more like six thousand feet. Ant people pushed their own short shadows. Cars were tiny toys. Hans Peter grinned and slapped his T-shirt-clad girth. "'I think I am too heavy to lie on the glass.' The icon in their host's black T-shirt was of comedian and tragedian masks in white outline side by side. Happy tit, sad tit. Whereas neither Andrew nor Trevor were any burlier than your average adolescent... Indeed, Trevor, whose new noir comedy about an innate Oriental serial murder, the Sirens of the Rams, just opened to acclaim in London's West End, looked somewhat like a retired jockey who dressed nostalgically. Balding but trim, almost sparrow-like. He favoured pastel silk shirts. Today's was a soft lime green. Andrew dressed more brutally in jeans and lumberjack shirt. He too was short, if somewhat squat, Beneath his defiantly curly russet hair, Andrew's face was mischievous in animation, although melancholy and fatigued in repose. There hadn't been the remotest hint of a challenge in Hans-Peter's remark, which was joviality itself. His words even stressed that some human burdens might be too extreme for the glass to bear. I suppose, mused Trevor, they would need to calculate for at least fifty or sixty stones impact just to be on the safe side. Stones? queried Hans-Peter. "'Wait!' explained Andrew thoughtlessly. "'Oh, I am not so heavy!' Peter turned away, seeming hurt, and Andrew felt ashamed. "'Indeed, there were several good pretexts for shame, "'such as the gleaming neatness and order and salubrious greenness of this city. "'With so many trees, parks, and geranium-hung balconies, "'such a dearth of mess, at least in the parts they had seen.' Precious little of Dusseldorf was old, for the simple reason that bombs dropped by Andrew or Trevor's kin of the previous generation had flattened the burg quite thoroughly, clearing the ground for a kind of utopian habitat founded on energetic work and the wealth that that produced. His shame was for the messier, lazier lifestyle back home, and for the atrophy of his own career. The personal inevitably found its public mirror wherever it could, An express elevator, operated by a dapper Turk dressed in a dark suit, had whispered their party up smoothly to the observation deck of the Rhine Tower. From immediately below, that concrete column had soared upwards, tapering to spread into a cone that hid the uppermost microwave dishes and the slimmer sky-needle from view. The tower was a creamy white fungus with flat gills of greenish glass. The glass leaned far outward, high overhead, at an angle of, what, thirty, thirty-five degrees? Now they were admiring the view through those great slopes of grass that canted outwards so disconcertingly from the very floor. Sun shone blindingly from a cloudless sky. Only the horizon was hazed by heat, obscuring Cologne twenty-odd miles away. Otherwise, miles of clean city, parks, snaking highways, then agriculture, and some distant clusters of pale, satanic mills, coal mines or cooling towers, which hardly polluted to perspective, though their silhouettes were subtly ominous. Trevor whistled a jaunty theme from Wagner's Ring. For the broad Rhine curved around below, with a quiescent amusement park erected on a strip of floodplain, roller coaster tracks weaving bright hoops and slaloms in the air. Ah, we are too far north for Rhine maidens, observed Hans-Peter. Indeed, none were visible. Barges plying the river were carrying desert camouflage trucks back to base from the recent Gulf War. Contemplatively, Several Japanese were pointing the latest video cameras at the expensive leafy suburb over the water beyond the nearest of the suspension bridges. Kneeling, one murmured a commentary, laying down a soundtrack. Perhaps they were filming their own expensive houses, since Dusseldorf was home to 60,000 Japanese businessmen and families. The commentator tilted his camera down to capture the North Rhine, Westphalia Parliament building, reminiscent of a gleaming machine made of large gear wheels and springs, a hand could almost reach down and wind it up, to set it in sleek motion. Reach down and down. "'What a shame,' Trevor said to Hans-Peter. "'I was hoping to see a maiden break surface.' Hans-Peter grinned and shrugged at this seeming whim, which was geographically inaccurate. "'Surfaces do break,' thought Andrew. "'But not those glass panels, oh no.' You should be near a Koblenz for maidens," said their host. When Andrew had barely left school decades ago, he had hitchhiked through that most picturesque part of the Rhineland all on his own, staying in youth hostels en route from Holland to Austria. He would always remember one lift with an impeccably tailored man driving a Mercedes. Inevitably, adolescent Andrew, dressed in some army surplus jacket, had been somewhat scruffy. Cruising through Beaupart or another of those enchanting little towns, Their murk had overhauled a crippled hunchback who was gimping slowly along the pavement. The driver had slowed to a crawl and coasted past, laughing heartily at the cripple. Andrew felt that he himself was being laughed at too. How shabby he felt up this tower. And how scruffy much of his own country was. Bottom of the Euro Economic League, fourth year running. Rising unemployment, businesses collapsing, houses being repossessed. Cardboard cities for the homeless, suicides, the slow death of the health services, the cramping of the schools. Just a month earlier, only streets away from Andrew's flat, a fellow had died in his car parked in the driveway of his former home, which was no longer his. His computer business had failed. Food was in the car trunk. The gas tank was empty. The man supposedly had died of natural causes. Was that the code for sheer despair? How shabby Andrew's own life had become since his work had dried up three years earlier, and since the divorce, which he didn't wish to think about. Yet here in Dusseldorf, obliviously, he was being feted, along with Trevor and the Americans Gail Gardner and Jerry DeRosa. Andrew was enjoying a brief post-mortem existence, so it seemed to him. The foreign hand of welcome caressed generously, if sometimes reproachfully, as when he failed to comport himself as a good European. The Dusseldorf Drama Festival was staging the German premiere of his black farce Cold Calls, an absurdist treatment of economic agony featuring a double-glazing salesman and his family. Their desperate dialing of random telephone numbers to solicit orders involved them crazily in a terrorist conspiracy. In truth, the play had begun as a heartfelt statement, yet it had rapidly become eccentric, paranoid and zany. A tour de force of the Fringe, a masterpiece of the Margin'. Cold Calls had been Andrew's final play. Thereafter, dialogue had died. With Dorothy. With Jonathan, their teenage son. With audiences and with himself. Though the part-time lecturing tidied him through, and though news of his demise hadn't yet registered in Dusseldorf. Gail Gardner wrote musical comedies for Broadway, and Jerry DeRosa operated more seriously off-Broadway. It was white-haired, perky, capricious Gale who advised Andrew, Don't look down on yourself, kiddo! Respect yourself! This was after hearing him interviewed by the German press in a self-deprecating vein that Andrew had imagined witty at the time. Gale had fixed him with a stern stare, which he softened by patting him on the arm. Of course, in the real world, dialogue continued, and his ear registered it, though all seemed unusable. Over there, Hans-Peter was gesturing at the rich suburb, it's where the assassination took place just a while ago, of the Minister for the New Lands, the Eastern Lands. He had his home there. Of a sudden, terrorism was close at hand, and real, and serious. Andrew wondered how he could possibly have presumed to write about terrorism and double glazing. Each of the four guests had their own dutiful German escort, and now Andrew's own slim, bespectacled Joachim, returned to join him and Trevor and Hans-Peter. The two other escorts, an ebullient, dark-haired woman and an older, weather-beaten man whose names Andrew had already misplaced in his increasingly fraying memory, were farther around the tower, pointing out sights to Gail and Jerry. Gail was travelling around Europe with an autocratic, blue-rinsed companion lady, and Jerry with a handsome, affected young male secretary, supposedly a secretary, would you like some coffee and chocolate cake? asked Joachim. I think the others will sit down for a while. A child was squalling in a cafe area, and Andrew shook his head. Trevor nodded a vague acceptance of the invitation, though he didn't yet make a move. He was still staring at the suburb where the blood had been shed. I suppose, Trevor quicked to Hans Peter, if you buy a whole new country, some people might get a trifle irritated. And Hans Peter laughed. "'for Trevor was a witty, noir dramatist. "'Buy a country! Ah, oh, yes, we are buying East Germany. "'But meanwhile, you see, the Japanese are busy buying us.' "'It will cost,' said Joachim earnestly. "'But we will pay.' "'Trevor smiled mischievously. "'Jerry said I really must visit the East before you lot change it totally. "'He told me going there is like driving along in a Technicolor movie, "'and suddenly it all changes to black and white.' And do you suppose they watched the outsides of the windows?' Andrew resumed, and Trevor flinched away in mock despair. How could a cleaning cradle possibly be lowered down the outside of the slope? I think, said Andrew, the cleaners wear suction pads on their palms and their knees and they crawl down from above. He mined a jerky, splayed progress across the overhanging glass. He leaned forward, hands resting on the steel spars to right and left. Along the river frontage, construction work was in progress— which would presently roof over the roadway to create a garden esplanade. On what was currently a neck of wasteland, many colourful tents were pitched close together behind a wire fence. Zagunas. Gypsies. Almost invisible from this height, placards strung along the wire demanded their right to remain in Germany. When the party passed by earlier, naked brown-skinned children with greasy black hair had been playing in dust around campfires. Where did they come from? Romania? "'Perhaps. What language did they speak? "'Some ethnic dialect,' Joachim had supposed. "'Andrew's hands flexed on the steel spars. "'Go on,' coaxed Trevor. "'You want to?' "'His tone said otherwise. "'He didn't even wish to see anyone emulate the exploits of those German schoolboys. "'He didn't believe Andrew would.' "'So Andrew lowered himself face-first onto the glass panel.' "'Spreading himself, oh yes, in a St. Andrew's cross, "'and holding on to nothing. "'He stared down at the sunbaked ground far below, "'nothing but glass and air between himself and concrete. "'Only after he had thrust himself back onto his feet "'did he allow himself to imagine the glass popping out under his weight. "'And the fall, the fall! "'Then his stomach fluttered, and his knees went wobbly, "'though not very.' "'I don't in the least mind looking down from an airplane,' said Trevor. "'That doesn't mean anything. "'But if I'm in somewhere that's attached to the ground—' "'I wonder if one could fly.' "'Trevor immediately understood. "'Fly down and land in the river? "'It's a bit far. "'I suppose if you knew what you were doing and you had the right clothes on. "'After all, James Bond did it in that movie.' "'Andrew thought of thermal updrafts from the baking concrete below, "'of capricious winds swirling around the tower— "'of a great sheet of glass acting as a sail. "'He thought of falling like a stone, "'falling for quite a few seconds, "'then smashing into black oblivion. "'So what would your last words be, in your mind?' "'Trevor asked. "'Trying to steal my dialogue, eh? "'I'm just curious. "'I was thinking that old fuck would probably sum it up. "'Not, Father, forgive me, receive me, "'I believe in you, utterly?' "'Andrew shook his head. The Siemens' building and its neighbours were silver cigarette packets, foil-clad by reflected sunlight. "'Isn't this something?' called Gail as Andrew and Trevor Hove into view. Some muscular, tanned locals were drinking beer at a neighbouring table. Tipsily, they began to query the dark-haired woman. Oh yes, she was Gazella, as to why the dramatists' companions were speaking in English, even to each other. "'That was wrong. Visitors should speak German!' Andrew understood only that much of what they said, and paused uncomfortably while Gazella talked to the men merrily. turned out they were miners. Despite past guarantees of a hundred years' employment, their mines were now under threat of closure. Cheaper coal from the east was to blame. One miner staggered erect, rambling loquaciously, and mind throwing himself in the tower, though he didn't seem woeful unto suicide, only peeved. "'He says in Berlin, the post you know,' explained Joachim. "'Beside the stretch of the wall that still remains, you can jump off a crane fifty meters high.' "'The death jump!' explained Jerry. and I saw that! Crazy!' "'Ja, yeah, the Todesprung," agreed the miner. "'Those who jump wear a harness with some sort of cable attached. How do you say it?' Joachim corsetined his hands in and out. "'Elastic?' "'Yes, elastic!' "'It costs one hundred marks for five seconds of fear. "'What a waste of money! "'He wishes someone would pay him a hundred marks twice a day "'to jump off a crane instead of working at a coal-faced table close. "'He is quite gentle, really,' Joaquin murmured as the miner flapped his arms. "'He's a big softy. Don't worry.' "'Andrew wandered on around the observation deck on his own. "'He found himself alone, out of sight of a soul.' By some flux of crowd dynamics, all visitors to the deck, except for himself, Japanese, German, families, whoever, had flowed to the other side of the circuit around the central column that housed the elevators. Maxwell's demon might suddenly have presided over all of the persons who had hitherto seemed distributed randomly, all except Andrew, whom the demon had isolated. Here was the very same plate of glass that he had rested upon, prostrate just a few minutes before. Surely the same one. The tested one. Tested by himself. Down there was the wind-up parliament building. At the same angle as earlier, the tented camp of the Zigunas. Trevor was right about the sheer paucity of his interior dialogue. Fuck wasn't adequate at all. Surely something more profound. Something wittier. More insightful. Something that capsuled a whole life. And life itself. Something that hovered just beyond his grasp. If only he could lay his hands upon that elusive something, why, true dialogue might commence for him once more. Andrew leaned forward, surrendering his weight once again to the glass. And the glass panel gave way. Andrew had bothered to read a bit about glass before he wrote cold calls. He might work some nugget of offbeat knowledge into the play. Glass was a supercooled liquid, it cooled without crystallizing. Its molecules didn't arrange themselves into regular, repetitive patterns, but remained all jumbled up, as in a fluid. Glass possessed no natural boundaries that would scatter light. Thus, you could see clearly through glass. Over thousands of years, glass might perhaps creep just a little. The glass panel flowed, and Andrew flowed too. With a terrible lurch of the heart, with his limbs becoming soft rubber, he knew that the glass had given way beneath him, that it was falling out of the tower, and that he too was falling out with it, helplessly, inevitably, for he sank. But then he sank no further. He was suspended, at the very same angle as the glass had been, staring across the Rhine. His body had gone away, had melted, and he was the glass panel itself. The glass had gathered him into it, and it was he who hung fixed there between those steel spars, hanging terrifyingly over empty air. A barge moved upstream, cutting awake. Cars sped. Ant people followed their shadows. And upon all this, he looked down. Presently he heard Trevor's clipped accent. "'Well, if you're sure he isn't in the toilet, then he isn't anywhere up here. "'The toilets are definitely empty. "'Those elevator operators say they didn't take him down. "'That was Joaquin. "'Maybe they didn't notice him. Maybe there was a crash. "'They are sure of it. "'So he must have used the emergency stairs,' suggested Jerry DeRosa. "'The fire exit. Why, without telling anyone?' "'We've been all the way round by now, in both directions,' said Trevor. "'How very inconsiderate of Mr. Craig,' remarked Gail's companion." None of them could see Andrew in the glass, even faintly, even as a ghostly reflection, and he couldn't turn, for now he was the glass. No more could he cry out to them, for he was mute. Their hosts talked to each other rapidly in German. Joachim sighed. "I will go down the stairs after him. Poor you, Gail sympathised. We will meet at the bottom. We must move on, or we shall miss seeing sufficient of our luxurious corps, "'Quite,' agreed Gail's friend. "'We have some shopping we want to do in the Connig's galley.' "'And all this he heard from behind him. "'He thought that Joachim returned about twenty minutes later. "'That seemed to be his voice, "'asking anxious, breathless questions in German, to no avail. "'The afternoon wore on, blindingly bright. "'The Rhine flowed by, quite like dark blue glass itself, "'rippled by the wind. Aslant he stared out and down, as though he were some perfectly flat and invisible gargoyle affixed to the tower. The horror of falling, of being released suddenly from his suspension, became irrelevant. He almost wished he could fall free, for then something would happen. It was a long evening until night, until the myriad lights of the city glowed white and golden for miles. What would his hosts think had happened? Amnesia? A nervous breakdown? An assault of utter rudeness? Had he taken a train eastward on impulse to the monochrome land? To the land without precise law, where the policemen no longer had any clear idea what their own rights and duties were? The ambiguous land, the indigent land, where dialogue was being awkwardly reborn? Dialogue between people, dialogue with the rest of the German nation, which might become a disillusioned and bitter dialogue, a family dialogue of the deaf... As witnessed that bloodshed among the smart dwellings across the river, had he gone like some sleepwalker to where language had till so recently been censored so as to study the revival of speech? Mutely, poised motionless, imprinted in glass, he who had looked down on himself now looked down on a whole city. Andrew became aware of movement just above his window. At first it seemed to be but a coiling, a congealing of the air, Then a long-limbed shape moved down, clinging to him. The shape blurred before his eyes as he sought to focus on something so close. He must not shrink from it. Otherwise the glass might suddenly contract, more than it ever contracted during the coldest winter night. Then it might pop free. It would spin down and shatter six hundred feet below, fracturing him schizophrenically into a dozen or a hundred parts of himself, most to be swept up and discarded one little piece, perhaps, to be worn as a charm by a scavenging, dusky ziguna, who discerned in that shard a segment of an imprisoned soul. He must not shrink. The being that had come from above moved slowly over his surface. Its slim, flexible limbs were translucent, as was its torso. Through its body, with almost the same perfect clarity as before, Andrew saw the dark Rhine, the bridge, the well-lit suburb, subject to a trembling ripple to stray bendings of the light no one watching from below through powerful binoculars would notice anything odd its head came into view peering at him from only inches away a head of glass of clear jelly bumps were its eyes its nose and its mouth were one and the same a tapering proboscis the being resembled a pellucid suit a body sleeve awaiting a wearer feeling its way as if blind it moved slowly seeking a resident. Its proboscis kissed the outer surface of the window, seeking Andrew's trapped, arrested existence. The proboscis began to suck. He was climbing, splay-handed and splay-footed across the sloping upper tier of windows, in an invisible body. His was not the impulse to climb. He sensed inevitability in the motions of this ethereal body of his. If he resisted, could he resist, perhaps the body would flutter away in the wind. He clambered sinuously over the lip, onto the broad rim occupied by great microwave dishes and horns. The true purpose of this tower, after all. Stepping behind one horn, he clung to it, a jellyfish embracing a vast ear trumpet. As his fingers played slowly across the rear surface, a torrent of voices flooded through him. In German, English, Japanese... A thousand telephone conversations. The dialogue of the world, restored multifold. Intimacies, conspiracies, bargainings. Electronic music warbled, too. Much would be from radar sites. Scrupulously scrying eastward. Fax transmissions, a burst of compressed, encrypted data. It was the voices he really listened to. And, of course, he understood those that were in English. "'Shimmying to another horn, he wrapped himself upon it. "'The glassy being hadn't understood any of the voices until now. "'But now it did. "'Where are you from?' he asked himself, silently, "'for the only sound was of the wind. "'What are you?' "'And though there was no acknowledgement of his question, "'he seemed to feel himself call out from behind the horn. "'Where are you? Where are you?' "'Straining for an answer, he held the horn.' Siving through all of the whispering bombardment of polygot voices for a special voice that might speak in a lilting, crooning language, unheard hitherto in the world. A voice issuing from some other tower that might well be been in another country. A voice that might be in orbit, high overhead, circling the earth on a satellite, where another similar glassy being hung. These potent yet precarious beings, worthy of the earth? Were they alternative entities? Angels that were virtually invisible? Were they aliens from another star? What had gone askew with their schemes, if indeed anything had gone askew at all? He waited a year, through autumn, through winter, through spring. He haunted the heights of the tower in rain, in snow, in sun, embracing the horns so as to eavesdrop on a million voices and on the burble of electronic code. Perhaps his body and that other lost body, marooned in some distant tower, were separated lovers. Perhaps they were scouts who had lost contact, having fallen from heaven or from space, and who were learning what they could of the world and what to them might seem like the span of a mere day. For a year he looked down in the city and the tiny people coming and going below. He crooned silently as though the horns would amplify his cryptic and elusive message, beaming it across the earth. Until time brought round a hot summer day again, and he knew, he knew as though he was smelling a compelling aroma, that he must climb over the lip of the tower and crawl down the slanting windows in a certain afternoon. During daylight, yes. His strange body heeded this yearning. He lay flat. First one sinuous arm, then another, crept over the edge. The drama festival had come around yet again, and Trevor had returned to Dusseldorf, and of course to the Rhine Tower. As Andrew clung outside the glass, Trevor was loitering within, with Hans Peter. Otherwise, the guests were new. Trevor recognised a bearded Afro-Caribbean playwright. Joachim was attending to the man. Gazella was occupied with an intense-looking redhead woman who wore a denim suit and a red rose through a buttonhole. Andrew mewed at his countrymen. Trevor! Trevor! Trevor rubbed his eyes because his vision was blurring as he gazed through alien or angelic Andrew at the Rhine. Smiling ruefully, Trevor stretched out his palm towards the sloping glass. He wasn't intending to lean his whole weight against the glass, oh no, but he did press a palm against the window and thrust tentatively. It was as if a circuit had closed. Not the circuit that Andrew had imagined the being was trying to establish by the microwave with another of its kind, but a circuit of self-identity, of completion. Clinging to the glassy overhang, the invisible being relaxed. When the party left the tower, there was some commotion down below. Spectators were gathering, including a couple of dusky, oily-haired gypsies. A tall, golden-legged woman in shorts and white jogging shoes was puffing in a cigarette as she talked urgently to a young policeman who fingered the radio clip to his belt. On the concrete... "'lay a heap of opaque, milky jelly. "'She is saying it fell in front of her from out of the air,' "'explained Hans Peter. "'He thinks Zagunas may have dumped something nasty there "'by way of protest. "'What is it?' "'butted in the denimed redhead. "'Already the jelly was beginning to sag and melt in the fierce sunlight. "'It's almost like limbs, like a body,' hazarded Trevor." No, that isn't the right shape for a body, insisted Joachim. A body woven of liquid? Trevor sneezed convulsively several times. Maybe it crawled out of the river. His words seemed as capricious as his sudden nasal volley. Hans-Peter grinned. Maybe it is a Rhine maiden in decay. You see, Trevor, I remember what you said last year. If that's a Rhine maiden, remarked the black playwright. Save me from their embrace. Stroking his beard, he eyed Gazella speculatively, but she merely said, It is awful. The jelly continued slumping and flowing. Escaping fluid was already evaporating in the intense heat, steaming into the air. Soon there would be no evidence left. Realising this, the tan jogger became more insistent. Frowning, the policeman reasoned with the woman, then glared at the gypsies. He returned his gaze expressionlessly. He thinks she has sunstroke, said Hans-Peter. He wants to call an ambulance for her. Now we must hurry up, or we will not have time to visit the Konig's Alley. Trevor stared up the mushroom stalk of the tower at the windows that leaned out. A year, he murmured. A whole year. And he shivered in the sunlight.
1: There you go, Dummaged. Copyright is, of course, Mr. Ian Watson's. Ian, thank you so much for that. And Kenny, thank you. Both links to Kenny and Ian's site, just on the front of Starship Sofa. So we get down. The Sofa Nauts Awards are creeping even closer. Just got Mark Bowman on here now with a little update, and with a little update from his wife. Mark, what's going on?
0: Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Mark. So, have you voted in Starship Sofa's The Sofanort Awards yet? Uh... You do know what the Sofanorts are, don't you? Well, I know you've been going on and on about them for the past couple of months, but I just tune out whenever you start talking about science fiction, so I'm not too clear on the details. Okay, well, you know about Starship Sofa, Right. Like I said, I just tune out. But yes, I've heard you talk about Starship Sofa many, many times. Well, the Sofa Nauts are Starship Sofa's very own awards, like the Hugo or the Nebula. You know about those, surely. Look,
1: I've got things I need to be doing. If you're just going to sit here and talk about science fiction...
0: All right, all right, I'll get to the point. The Sofa Nauts will recognise listeners' favourite stories and contributors from the first 52 shows of Oral Delights. The categories include Best Flash Fiction, Best Short Fiction, Best Poetry Contributor... Best Fact Article Contributor And Best Narrator I thought you said you were going to get to the point Yeah, yeah Well first we held a nomination round with listeners voting for their favourites in an online poll Then in mid-December we opened the finalist poll It's open until the 23rd of January so anyone who hasn't voted yet doesn't have much time So where can people vote? Well there's a link to the online poll on starshipsofa.com Listeners can also cast their votes on the Starship Sofa forums also located on the website So are you going to vote? I don't think so Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll make a CD of all the stories so you can listen to him in the car. How about that? How about no? You know how I feel about science fiction. Oh, come on, you're missing out on some great stuff. Oh, poor me. Well, if you're not going to vote, I hope everyone else who listens to Starship Sofa does. They've only got until the 23rd of January. Yeah, you said all that. Look, I'm going to go do some of those important tasks I'm sure I can find. Have fun with your science fiction. Oh, hey, do you want to watch Firefly with me? Jemmy?
1: Hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Borman, thank you so much for that. Do look out for the final where we meet myself and Mark. Little show all about the winners. We will release the the winners to you. So now it's time for new titles, and we have got a number. Let's just count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And they've been dropping through the the letterbox there right through the holidays. And I thought it would be the best thing to just kind of save them all up and do like one big smorgasbord of new titles. (laughs) And just, you know, glancing at them, you find, and just throughout, you know, getting all these new titles coming in, it's heavily still now, you know, fantasy. It's a lot of fantasy still getting pushed out there. So, but I'll go through them and then let you decide if you like them or not. Have a have a browse through them. The first one is by a writer called Brent Weeks, and actually, there's three. And first one, We Are the Shadows. Second one, Shadows Edge, and the third one, Beyond the Shadows. Now, I don't want to kind of. Read the blurbs off the second and third one because that'll spoil what's happened in the first one. Do you know what I mean? The, the kind of I've just been reading through them there, and if I read like this second blurb, it tells you all what's happened and it tells you the final of what happened in the first one. So that would kind of really defeat everything. But I'll give you a little kind of blurb on this: "The Way of the Shadows." This is book one of the Night Angel trilogy by Brent Weeks, and I popped in the Borders. I've been in Borders a few times. And this whole collection is just taking up like two shelves of like prime real estate on, in borders. So, and it's by Orbit. So this must be one of kind of Orbit's for 2008, 2009 big hitters, you know, to hopefully get it out there and get, get it all sold. And it's nice. I like the covers to be quite honest. I'm normally against using basically like a huge, like a, a real life person on the cover. It looks a bit tacky in that, but as far as this one goes, it's not too bad. You can never really see the full face. It's just like a little bit of the chin or, you know, and the, and the dagger blade there next to him, all that. But it, it looks all right. Do you know what I mean? As, like I say, some of them go, are just kind of naff and a bit crappy. But this we of the Shadows, which is book one, he's got him like a mean moody and his hoods over his eyes, you know, proper a, a, an assassin's apprentice. So anyway, I'll give you a little bit blurb on this one. For Duzur Blint, assassination is an art, and he is the city's most accomplished artist, his talents required from alleyway to courtly boudoir. For Azoth, survival is precarious, something you never take for granted. As a guild rat, he's grown up in the slums and learned the hard way to judge people quickly and to take risks, risks like be apprenticing himself to Duzur Blint. But to be accepted, Azoth must turn his back on the old life and embrace a new identity and a name. As Kylos Stern, he must learn to navigate the assassin's world of dangerous politics and strange magics and cultivate a flair for death. Terry Brooks, little blurb by Terry Brooks. I was memorised from start to finish, unforgettable characters, a plot that kept me guessing non-stop action and the kind of in-depth storytelling that makes me admire a writer's work. There you go. And this is, let's see, one of them Orbit books and a little bit in the back, a little bit of blurb about the back. You know, he's got these little extras in there. A little about about the author. Brent Weeks was born and raised in Montana. After getting his paper keys from Hillsdale College, Brent had a brief stint walking the earth like Cain from Kung Fu, tending bar and corrupting the youth. He started writing on bar napkins. Eventually someone paid him for it. Brent lives in Oregon with his wife. He doesn't own cats or wear a ponytail. And if you walk into any bookshop, you'll see these ones, because they're just being so pushed at the minute. So, The Way of the Shadows, book one. Shadow's Edge, book two. And Beyond the Shadows, book three. Meaty volumes, to be quite honest. Let's have a look. This one is, it's roughly, you know, 650 words. Book one, book two is monstrously 650 again, roughly. Book three is a little bit bigger, nearly 700, probably 700. There you go. Some meaty, chunky books there. Next one is The Hammer of God by Karen Miller. Karen Miller was the author I met at, or I kind of, you know, basically was introduced to at the science fiction convention in France. And was all seeming to be like having a nice heated debate with Richard K. Morgan. And Karen Miller is, it says, yeah, the best-selling author of The Innocent Mage. And this is book three from Godspeaker. I'll give you a little blurb on the back. In Aretha, Rian sits on a precious throne as defiant noblemen threaten the stability of her kingdom. Zandaka, a man Rian thought was her friend, has been revealed as a son of a sworn enemy and her husband, King Alasdara, is increasingly unsure of her love. Her gravest problem, however, lies outside the borders of her realm. The trading nations refuse to believe... Majak is a threat and promised reprisals if Rian dares to protect her country. If she cannot unite the warring factions within her land, a move against Majak might prove to the end of her reign, which is exactly what the Empress Majak has planned. A little bit of praise for Godspeaker Trilogy. Empress is an ambassador. Imbe- this is the first one. Let's have a look. Empress and then the Riven Kingdom. And this, like I say, this is book three, The Hammer of God. Empress is an ambitious, impressive, and intriguing novel. This is that's by Starburst. Fascinating, creative enough, and different enough to make it enjoyable. That was by Grasping for the Wind. Again, this is an orbit book, 799. Be a little heads up on Karen Miller. Karen Miller was born in Vancouver, Canada, and moved to Australia with her family when she was two. Apart from a three-year stint in the UK after graduating from university with a BA in communications, she has lived in and around Sydney ever since. Started writing stories while in primary school, where she fell in love with speculative fiction and reading The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, exactly the same as me. So this is Karen Miller, the third one in this trilogy, Godspeaker. They go... Orbit Books, like I say, 7 99 Another chunky book there, mind you. You know, good 700 pages nearly. There you go. Next one up is Accidental Sorcerer by K.E. Mills. And guess what? Pseudonym K.E. Mills this is a pseudonym of Karen Miller, <laughs> who've just come. And actually, this one sounds quite, I don't know, I get a cookie and quite good. This is The Accidental Sorcerer, Rogue Agent Book 1 by, like I say, K.E. Mills. Little subtitle there, Dangerous One Day, Lethal the Next. Gerald Dunwoody is a wizard, just not a particularly good one. Every time I see the word now the name Dunwoody, I'm always kind of brought back to Connie Willis and, you know, to say nothing of the dog and her doomsday book. So I'll give you this blurb on this what this book. Gerald Dunwoody is a wizard. Just not a particularly good one. He's blown up a factory, lost his job, and there's a chance that he's not really a third-grade wizard after all. Korea disaster strikes again. Luckily, an influential friend manages to get him a posting, so it's off now to New Otto's Land to be the new court wizard for King Lionel. His backup an then sorcerer bird with a mysterious past seems dubious, but it's New Otto's Land or nothing. Unfortunately, King Lionel isn't vain, self-centered young man he appeared to be. With a princess in danger, a bird brain back up, and a kingdom to save, Gerald soon suspects he might be out of his depth. And if he can't keep his job, how can he become the wizard he was destined to be? There you go, 699. Orbit. Again, like I say, this is a pseudonym of Karen Miller. Sounds quite kooky, that one. And... Yes, it's, this one has another, like, kind of human face on the front there, and it's not as good as the other ones. You can see more of a human face, and there's a kind of silly looking wizardy hat, and that just looks a bit kind of lame in my eyes, but have a look at it. The Accidental Sorcerer. Rogue Agent, Book 1. Next one up is, guess what? The official prequel to the award-winning video game Gears of War by Karen Travis. I think just hijacking the actual exploitations of that game and how popular it is. Let's see if we can get a book out there and get a little bit more. This is by Orbit again. I'll give you the blurb on the back. For the first time, fans of the blockbuster Gears of War video game get an in-depth look at Delta Squad's toughest fighters, Soldier's Soldier, Marcus Fenix, and the steadfast Dominic Santiago, as well as a detailed account of the pivotal battle of the Pendulum Wars. Mmm. Would anybody pick that up? Do you know what I mean? And get it. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? The cover is a bit of a... You know, these kind of soldiers are just... Battlestead, you know, a big gun. The gun's nearly is twice as big as this guy on the front. But this guy just looks a huge monster. It's kind of drawn in a little bit of like a cartoony way. You know what I mean? It's like I say, it's a, it's a digital picture. But it's, I don't know, it's just, it wouldn't make me want to kind of tackle it, to be quite honest. But I'll, you know, I'll carry on. It might be to someone's cup of tea there. As kids, the three men were inseparable. As soldiers, they were torn apart. Marcus Fenix and Dominic Santiago fought alongside Dom's elder brother, Carlos, at Aspo Fields in the epic battle that changed the course of the Pendulum Wars. There's a new war to fight now, a war of mankind's very survival. But while the last human stronghold on Sierra braces itself for another onslaught from the Locust Horde, Ghosts come back to haunt Marcus and Dom as the return of an old comrade threatens to dredge up agonising secrets Marcus has sworn to keep. As the beleaguered gears of the coalition of ordered governments take a last stand to survive mankind from extinction, the harrowing decisions made at Aspo fields have to be relived and made again. Marcus and Dom can take anything that the locusts throw at them, but will their friendship survive the truth of Carlos Santiago? This novel is based on a computer game with an eighteen rating. Seven ninety nine Orbit Books, Karen Travis, number one New York selling author. I ain't heard of Kevin, Karen Travis. Let's just see. I don't know if maybe like you know the kind of Star Wars or the Star Trek writers. Now there's no little. I don't think there's a little. Oh, there might be. No, there's no extras in this, so I can't say who Karen Travis is. Anyway, Gears of War, seven ninety nine. Next one up is Aria Salvador, the ancient. Give a little heads up on this one then. Now I've seen Aria Salvador, never de- dug in deep to him. This one's from Tor. Never, you know, I've never kind of picked them up, but I've seen them kicking around for quite a long time there now. So, and this has got on the front cover that I describe it, the ancient. It's got some sort of like female, hard looking edged woman with kind of a spear and a knife and in the background there's a a guy with a kind of like a full Zorro mask on there so Saga of the First King this might be kind of book one I'm guessing a superb multi-stranded fantasy set in the world of Corona where magic and danger abound searching for his long lost father Branson Garibond is tricked into journeying across the Gulf of Corona to the wild lands of Vanguard where he's pressed into service in a desperate war against the brutal ancient Baden. On a lake just below Baden's magical ice castle, several desperate societies, dwarves, monks and barbarians, are caught up in the web of their own conflicts, and thus oblivious to the devastating plan to destroy them by releasing a tidal wave to wipe their island clean. Branson finds himself becoming the link between these turmoils, and if he fails, all who live on this lake will perish and all of northern Hunts will fall under the shadow of a merciful and vengeful oppressor. Mmm, there you go. <laughs> One of the fantasy genre's most successful authors, Aria Salvatore, books regularly appear in the New York Times bestseller list and have sold more than 10 million copies. Ho ho Salvatore's first published novel, The Crystal Shard, became the first volume in the claimed Icewind Dale trilogy and introduced an enormously popular character, a dark elf, Dizit Doola, 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 with something D-O-U-R-D-N, make your own mind up there. Since that time, Salvatore has published numerous novels for each of his signature multi-volume series, including the Dark Elf trilogy, Paths of Darkness, the Hunter's Blades trilogy, and the Cleric Quintet. The ancient is the second in Ari. I've got to say I got that wrong straight away. The ancient is the second in Ari Salvatore's four-book series, The Saga of the First King, chronicled in the early days of the magic world of Corona. It follows Highwayman, born in 1959. Salvatore lives in Massachusetts with his wife and three children. There you go. It is by Tall. Like I said, six ninety nine. You know, It seems, apart from Gears of War, which is kind of just a a tack-on for a a video game, it's all just like part one, part two, part three. That's just, you know, the way bookshops and the way everything is going at the moment. Publishers, just part one, part two. Here we go. Last one, then. Orphans Alliance by Robert Brutner. Brutner, I think it is. Making a stand for humanity. On the front, we've got some sort of... What looks like an, an Air Force pilot, or actually the actual helmet does, but then it's just geared up to the kind of military hilt with all this kind of armour and guns and everything like that. This is Orphans Alliance, which is actually, I think it actually, before I kind of get into reading it, the fourth one, there was Orphanage, Orphans Destiny, and Orphans Journey. So I'll give you a little blurb on that. I mean, actually, it's got some, you know, Joe Haldeman, John Slazy saying, Joe Haldeman says, you know, praise for this orphan series. The near future Butner appearance is as believable as it is terrible. As much, and this is John Scalzi, as much action as any military SF fan could hope for. Jason's army defeated the slugs on Bren and now, 15 years later, he finds himself once more commanding an invasion force. This time they must expel the slugs from a small moon where they decimated the human inhabitants. And although Earth has finally begun to mobilize against the aggressors, a new and problematic faction has arisen. The totalitarian government of the Trestle, a strategically situated planet, is willing to defeat the slugs at any cost, regardless of human casualties. Unfortunately for Jason, and his godson Jude, is attached to the Tesla Total War policies. As the struggle continues, Jason is not only fighting for his survival of the human race, but for the only family he has left. You know, out of all of them, that's the one I probably think crappy cover, mind you. Crappy, crappy cover. But that's the one I would probably dip into. And books by Robert Brutner, like I say, Orphanage, Orphan's Destiny, Orphan's Journey, Orphan's Alliance, which is this one here. And coming soon, or it might even be out in hardback, Orphan's Triumph. There is a little bit on the extras, so this must be an Orbit book. Robert Butner is a former military intelligence officer, a national science fiction foundation fellow in paleontology, and has been published in the field of natural resources law. He lives in Georgia. His website is RobertButner.com. There you go. So that is the last one in the new titles. We have Robert Butner Orphans Alliance, Arya Salvador the Ancient. K.E. Mills, pseudonym of Karen Mills, the accidental sorcerer. Gears of War, Karen Travis. We have Karen Millers, the hammer of God, that's part three. And we have the three volumes in Brent Weeks Trilogy, Beyond the Shadows, Shadows Edge, and We Are the Shadows. Too many bloody shadows. There you go. Push them to one side there. If you want any of them books there, try and get my name, or not my name, Starship Sovaz, on any website, and I'll send one of them off to you. So that is New titles. I think now it's very much the time for... Part 2 of Temptation by David Brin and a little introduction by Julie Davis again. Julie, you are all over Starship Sora.
2: In Part 1 of Temptation by David Brin, we met a colony of neodolphins whose intelligence has been uplifted so that they were able to serve on a starship. The stresses of combat and space service left some unable to serve. They have been deposited on the planet of Jijo with some caretakers who are doctors and specialists to watch over them. One of the caretakers, Pipo, has been kidnapped. Another specialist, Tiket, has been sent to find and rescue her. Both Pipo and Tiket have sensed a mysterious object far under the ocean, and both individually are going to investigate. Temptation by David Brin Part 2 Peepo She could sense Zaki and Mopal closing in from behind. They might be idiots, but they knew what they wanted and how to pilot their sled at maximum possible speed without frying the bearings. Once alerted to her escape attempt, they cast ahead using the machine's deep-range sonar. She felt each loud ping like a small bite along her backside. By now, they knew exactly where she was. The noise was meant to intimidate her. It worked. I don't know how much longer I can keep on, Pipo thought while her body burned with fatigue. Each body-arching plunge through the waves seemed to take more out of her. No longer a joyful sensation, the ocean's silky embrace became a clinging drag, taxing and stealing her hard-won momentum making people earn each dram of speed over and over again. In comparison, the hard vacuum of space seemed to offer a better bargain. What you bought, you got to keep. Even the dead stayed on trajectory, tumbling ever onward. Space travel tended to promote belief in progress, a notion that old-style dolphins used to find ridiculous and still had some trouble getting used to. I should be fairly close to the sound I was chasing. Whatever's making it, I'd be able to tell if only those vermin behind me would turn off the damned sonar and let me listen in peace. Of course, the pinging racket was meant to disorient her. Peepo only caught occasional sonic glimpses of her goal, and then only by diving below the salt boundary layer, something she did as seldom as possible, since it always slowed her down. The noise of the sled's engine sounded close too damned close. At any moment, Zaki and Mopole might swerve past to cut her off, then start spiraling inward, hurting her like some helpless sea animal while they chortled, enjoying their macho sense of power. I'll have to submit, bear their punishment, put up with bites and whackings till they're convinced I've become a good cow. None of that galled Pepo as much as the final implication of her recapture. "'I guess this means I'll have to kill the two of them.' "'It was the one thing she'd been hoping to avoid. "'Murder among dolphins had been rare in olden times, "'and the genetic engineers worked to enhance this innate distaste. "'Anyway, people had wished to avoid making the choice. "'A clean getaway would have sufficed. "'She didn't know how she'd do it. "'Not yet. "'But I'm still a Terragens officer,' while they relish considering themselves wild beasts. How hard can it be? Part of her knew that she was drifting, fantasizing. This might even be the way her subconscious was trying to rationalize surrendering the chase. She might as well give up now, before exhaustion claimed all her strength. No, I've got to keep going! Hippo let out a groan as she redoubled her efforts, bearing down with intense drives of her powerful tail flukes. Each moment that she held them off meant just a little more freedom, a little more dignity. It couldn't last, of course. Though it felt exultant and defiant to give one more hard push, the burst of speed eventually faded as her body used up its last reserves. Quivering, she fell at last into a languid glide, "'gasping for air to fill her shuddering lungs. "'Too bad. "'I can hear it. "'The underwater thing I was seeking. "'Not too far away now. "'But Zaki and Mopole are closer still.' "'What took Pipo some moments to recall "'was that the salt-thermal barrier deadened sound "'from whatever entity was cruising the depths below. "'For her to hear it now... "'however faintly.' "'Meant that it had to be—' "'A tremor rocked Peepo. "'She felt the waters bulge around her "'as if pushed aside by some massive creature "'far under the ocean's surface. "'Realization dawned, "'even as she heard Zaki's voice "'shouting gleefully only a short distance away. "'It's right below me! "'The thing! "'It's passing by! "'Down there in the blackness!' She had only moments to make a decision. Judging from cues in the water, it was both very large and very far beneath her. Yet, Pipo felt nowhere near ready to attempt a deep dive while each breath still sagged with ragged pain. She heard and felt the sled zoom by, spotting her two tormentors sprawled on the machine's back, grinning as they swept by dangerously close. Instinct made her want to turn away and flee or else go below for as long as her lungs could hold out. But neither move would help, so she stayed put. They'll savor their victory for a little while, she thought, hoping they were confident enough not to use the sled's stunner on her. Anyway, at this short range, what could she do? It was hard to believe they hadn't picked up any signs of the behemoth by now. Stupid, single-minded males, they had concentrated all of their attention on the hunt for her. Zackie and Mopole circled around her twice, spiraling slowly closer, leering and chattering. Pipo felt exhausted, still sucking air for her laboring lungs. But she could afford to wait no longer. As they approached for the final time, she took one last body-stretching gasp through her blowhole, arched her back, and flipped over to dive nose-first into the deep. At the final instant, her tail flukes waved at the boys, a gesture that she hoped they would remember with galling regret. Blackness consumed the light, and she plunged, kicking hard to gain depth while her meager air supply lasted. Soon darkness welcomed Pipo, but on passing the boundary layer she did not need illumination any Sound guided her, the throaty rumble of something huge, moving gracefully and complacently, through a world where sunshine never fell. T'Ket He had several reasons to desire a starship, even one that was unable to fly. It could offer a way to visit the Great Midden, for instance, and explore its wonders. A partly operational craft might also prove useful to the six races of Jicho, whose bloody war against the Jofor aggressors was said to be going badly ashore. Tiquette also imagined using such a machine to find and rescue Pepo. The beautiful dolphin medic, one of Mackenzie's assistants, had been kidnapped shortly before Streaker departed. No one held out much hope of finding her, since the ocean was so vast, and the two dolphin felons, Mopole and Zaki, had an immensity to conceal her in. But that gloomy calculation assumed that searchers must travel by sled. A ship, on the other hand, even a wreck that had lain on an ocean floor garbage dump for a half a million years, could cover a lot more territory, and the listen with big underwater sonophones, combing for telltale sounds from Pipo and her abductors. It might even be possible to sift the waters for earthling DNA traces. tiket had heard of such techniques available for a high price on galactic markets, knew what wonders the fabled boyar took for granted on their elegant starcraft. Unfortunately, the trail kept going hot and cold. Sometimes he picked up murmurs that seemed incredibly close, channeled by watery layers that focused sound. Other times, they vanished altogether. Frustrated, T'Kaut was willing to try anything, so when Chassi started getting agitated, Squealing in primal that a great beast prowled to the southwest, he willingly turned the sled in the direction she indicated. And soon he was rewarded. Indicators began flashing on the control panel and down his neural link cable, connecting the sled to an implanted socket behind his left eye. In addition to a surge of noise, mass displacement anomalies suggested something of immense size was moving ponderously just ahead and perhaps a hundred meters down. I guess we better go find out what it is, he told his passenger, who clicked her agreement. Go chase, go chase, go chase Orcas. She let out squalls of laughter at her own cleverness, but minutes later, as they plunged deeper into the sea, both listening and peering down the shaft of the sled's probing headlights, Jasis ceased chuckling and became silent as a tomb. GREAT DREAMERS! Tiquette stared in awe and surprise at the object before them. It was unlike any starship he had ever seen before. Sleek metallic sides seemed to go on and on forever as the titanic machine trudged onward across the seafloor, churning up mud with thousands of shimmering crystalline legs. As if sensing their arrival, a mammoth hatch began irising open, in benign welcome he hoped. No resurrected starship. Dequet began to suspect he had come upon something entirely different. People her ribcage heaved. Pipo's lungs filled with a throbbing ache as she forced herself to dive ever deeper, much lower than would have been wise, even if she weren't fatigued to the very edge of consciousness. The sea at this depth was black. Her eyes made out nothing. But that was not the important sense. Underwater, sonar clicks emitted from her brow grew more rapid as she scanned ahead, using her sensitive jaw as an antenna to sift the reflections. It's big, she thought when the first signs returned. Echo outlines began coalescing. And she shivered. "'It doesn't sound like metal. "'The shape seems less artificial than something.' "'A thrill of terror coursed her spine "'as she realized that the thing ahead "'had outlines resembling a gigantic living creature, "'a huge mass of fins and trailing tentacles, "'resembling some monster from the stories "'dolphin children would tell each other at night, "'secure in their rookeries "'near one of Earth's great port cities.' What lay ahead of Peepo, swimming along well above the canyon floor, seemed bigger and more intimidating than the giant squid who fought Sitter sperm whales, mightiest of all the cetaceans. And yet, Peepo kept arching her back, pushing hard with her flukes, straining ever downward. Curiosity compelled her. Anyway... She was closer to the creature than the sea surface where Zakia Mopal waited. I might as well find out what it is. Curiosity was just about all she had left to live for. When several tentacles began reaching for her, the only remaining question in her mind was about death. I wonder who I'll meet on the other side. Macanee. The dolphins in the pod. Her patience. All woke about the same time from their afternoon siesta, screaming. Mackenzie and her nurses joined Brookita, who had been on watch, swimming rapid circles around the frightened reverts, preventing any of them from charging in panic across the wide sea. Slowly, they all calmed down from a shared nightmare. It was a common enough experience back on Earth when unconscious sonar clicks from two or more sleeping dolphins would sometimes overlap and interfere, creating false echoes, the ghost of something terrifying. It did not help that most cetaceans sleep just one brain hemisphere at a time. In a way, that seemed only to make the dissonance more eerie, and the fallacious sound images more credibly scary. Most of the patients were inarticulate, emitting only a jabber of terrified primal squeals. But there were a dozen or so borderline cases who might even recover their full faculty some day. One of these moaned nervously about Tiquette and a city of spells. Another one chittered nervously, repeating over and over the name of Peepo. Tiquette Well, at least the machine has air inside he thought. We can survive here, and learn more. In fact, the huge underwater edifice, bigger than all but the largest starships, seemed rather accommodating, pulling back metal walls as the little sled entered a spacious airlock. The floor sank in order to provide a pool for Tequette and Chassis to debark from their tight cockpits and swim around. It felt good to get out of the cramped confines even though Tequette knew that coming inside might be a mistake. Mackenay's orders had been to do an inspection from the outside, then hurry home. But that was when they expected to find one of the rusty little spacecraft that Streaker's engineers had resurrected from some seafloor dross pile. As soon as Tequette saw this huge cylindrical thing churning along the sea bottom on myriad caterpillar legs that gleamed like crystal stalks, he knew that nothing on Jijo could stand in the way of his going aboard. Another wall folded aside, revealing a smooth channel that stretched ahead, water below, and air above, beckoning the two dolphins down a hallway that shimmered as it continued transforming before their eyes. Each panel changed color with the glimmering luminescence of octopus skin, seeming to convey meaning in each transient, flickering shade. Chasis thrashed her tail nervously, as objects kept slipping through seams in the walls. Sometimes, these featured a camera lens at the end of an articulated arm, peering at them as they swam past. Not even the boyar could afford to throw away something as wonderful as this, Tiquette thought, relishing a fantasy of taking this technology home to earth. At the same time, the mechanical implements of his tool harness quivered, Responding to nervous twitches that his brain sent down the neural tap, he had no weapons that would avail in the slightest if the owners of this place proved to be hostile. The corridor spilled at last into a wide chamber with walls and ceiling that were so corrugated that he could not estimate its true volume. Countless bulges and spires protruded inward, half of them submerged, and the rest hanging in mid air. All were bridged by cables and webbing that glistened like spiderwebs lined with dew. Many of the branches carried shining spheres or cubes or dodecahedrons that dangled like geometric fruit, ranging from half a meter across to twice the length of a bottlenose dolphin. Chasis let out a squall, colored with fear and awe. Coral that bites! Coral bites! Bites! See the critters stabbed by Coral! When he saw what she meant, Tuket gasped. The hanging fruits were mostly transparent. They contained things that moved, creatures who writhed or hopped or ran in place, churning their arms and legs within the confines of their narrow compartments. Adaptive optics in his right eye whirred, magnifying and zooming toward one of the crystal-walled containers. Meanwhile, his brow cast forth a stream of nervous sonar clicks, "'Useless in the air, as if trying to penetrate this mystery with yet another sense. "'I don't believe it.' "'He recognized the shaggy creature within a transparent cage. "'Ifni, it's a hoon, a miniature hoon.' "'Scanning quickly, he found individuals of other species.' four-legged urs with their long necks whipping nervously like muscular snakes, minuscule trachee that resembled their joffer cousins, looking like tapered stacks of doughnuts piled high, and tiny versions of wheeled gekeks, spinning their hubs madly, as if they were actually going somewhere. In fact, every member of the commons of six races of Jijo Fugitive clans that had settled this world illegally during the last two thousand years could be seen here, represented in Lilliputian form. Taket's spine shuddered when he made out several cells containing slim, bipedal forms. Bantamweight human beings, whose race had struggled against lonely ignorance on old Terra for so many centuries, Nearly destroying the world before they finally matured enough to lead the way toward true sapiency for the rest of Earth Clan. Before Tiket's astonished eye, these members of the patron race were now reduced to leaping and cavorting within the confines of dangling crystal spheres. Pipo Death would not be so mundane, nor hurt in such familiar ways. When she began regaining consciousness there was never any doubt which world this was, the old cosmos of life and pain. People remembered the sea-monster, an undulating behemoth of fins, tendrils, and phosphorescent scales, more than a kilometer long and nearly as wide, flapping wings like a manta-ray as it glided well above the seafloor. When it reached up for her, she never thought of fleeing toward the surface where mere enslavement waited. Pipo was too exhausted by that point, and too transfixed by the images, both sonic and luminous, of a true leviathan. The tentacle was gentler than expected in grabbing her unresisting body and drawing it toward a widening beak-like maw. As she was pulled between a pair of jagged-edged jaws, Pipo had let blackness finally claim her, moments before the end. THE LAST THOUGHT TO PASS THROUGH HER HEAD WAS A TRINARY HAIKU. ARROGANCE IS ANSWERED WHEN EACH OF US IS RECLAIMED. REJOIN THE FOOD CHAIN. ONLY THERE TURNED OUT TO BE MORE TO HER LIFE AFTER ALL. EXPECTING TO BECOME PULPED FOOD FOR HUGE intestines, SHE WAKENED INSTEAD, SURPRISED TO FIND HERSELF IN ANOTHER WORLD. A BLURRY WORLD AT FIRST. SHE LAY IN A SMALL POOL. That much was evident, but it took moments to restore focus. Meanwhile, out of the pattern of her bemused sonar clickings, a reflection seemed to mold itself unbidden, surrounding people with trinary philosophy. In the turning of life's cycloid, pulled by sun and moon insistence, once a springtime storm may toss you over reefs that have no channel, "'into some lagoon untravelled, "'where strange fishes spiny poisoned, "'taunt you, forlorn, isolated.' "'It wasn't an auspicious thought-poem, "'and Pipo cut it off sharply, "'lest such stark sonic imagery trigger panic. "'The trinary fog clung hard, though. "'It dissipated only with fierce effort, "'leaving a sense of dire warning in its wake. "'Rising to the surface,' Pippo lifted her head and inspected the pool, lined by a riot of vegetation. Dense jungle stretched on all sides, brushing the rough textured ceiling and cutting off her view beyond a few meters. Flickering movements and skittering sounds revealed the presence of small inhabitants, from flying insectoids to clambering things that peered at her shyly from behind sheltering leaves and shadows. A habitat, she realized. Things lived here, competed, preyed on each other, died, and were recycled in a familiar ongoing synergy. The largest starships often contained ecological life-support systems, replenishing both food and oxygen supplies in the natural way. But this is no starship. It can't be. The huge shape I saw could never fly. It was a sea-beast meant for the underwater world. It must have been alive. Well, was there any reason why a gigantic animal could not keep an ecology going inside itself, like the bacterial cultures that helped Pipo digest her own food? So now what? Am I supposed to take part in all of this somehow? Or have I just begun a strange process of being digested? She set off with a decisive push of her flukes. A dolphin without tools wasn't very agile in an environment like this. Her monkey-boy cousins, humans and chimps, would do better, but Pipo was determined to explore while her strength lasted. A channel led out of the little pool. Maybe something more interesting lay around the next bend. Tiquette One of the spiky branches started moving, bending, and articulating, as it bowed lower toward the watery surface where he and Chasis waited. At its tip, one of the crystal, Fruits, contained a quadrupedal being, an earth whose long neck twisted as she peered about with glittering black eyes. Tiquette knew just a few things about this species. For example, they hated water in its open liquid form. Also, the females were normally as massive as a full-grown human, yet this one appeared to be as small as a diminutive ur male, less than twenty centimeters from nose to tail. Back in the civilization of five galaxies, Ur's were known as great engineers. Humans didn't care for their smell. The feeling was mutual. But interactions between the two star-faring clans had been cordial. Ur's weren't among the persecutors of Earth-Clan. Tequette had no idea why an offshoot group of Ur's came to this world, centuries ago, establishing a secret and illegal colony on a planet that had been declared off-limits by the Migration Institute. As one of the six races, they now galloped across Jijo's prairies, tending herds and working metals at forges that used heat from fresh volcanic lava pools. To find one here, under the sea, left him boggled and perplexed. The creature seemed unaware of the dolphins who watched from nearby. From certain internal reflections, Tiket guessed that the glassy confines of the enclosure were transparent only in that one direction. Flickering scenes could be made out, playing across the opposite internal walls. He glimpsed hilly countryside covered with swaying grass. The little urs galloped along as if unencumbered and unenclosed. The sphere dropped closer, and Tiket saw that it was choked with innumerable microscopic threads that crisscrossed the little chamber. Many of these terminated at the body of the urs, especially at the bottoms of her flashing hooves. Resistance simulators! Tiket recognized the principle, though he had never seen such a magnificent implementation. Back on Earth, Humans and chimps would sometimes put on full bodysuits and VR helmets before entering chambers where a million needles made up the floor, each one computer-controlled. As the user walked along a fictitious landscape, depicted visually in goggles he wore, the needles would rise and fall, simulating the same rough terrain underfoot. Each of these small crystal containers apparently operated in the same way, but with vastly greater texture and sophistication, So many tendrils, pushing, stroking, or stimulating each patch of skin, could feign wind blowing through urish fur, or simulate the rough sensation of holding a tool, perhaps even the delightful rub-and-tickle of mating. Other stalks descended toward Tequette and Chasis, holding many more virtual reality fruits, each one containing a single individual. All of Jijo's sapient races were present though much reduced in stature. Chassis seemed especially agitated to see small humans that ran about, or rested, or bent in apparent concentration over indiscernible tasks. None seemed aware of being observed. It all felt horribly creepy. Yet the subjects did not give an impression of lethargy or unhappiness. They seemed vigorous, active, interested in whatever engaged them. Perhaps they did not even know the truth about their peculiar existence. Chassis snorted her uneasiness, and Tiquette agreed. Something felt weird about the way these micro-environments were being paraded before the two of them, as if the mind, or minds, controlling the whole vast apparatus had some point it was trying to make, or some desire to communicate. Is the aim to impress us? He wondered about that, then abruptly realized what it must be about. All of Jijo's sapient races were present. In fact, that was no longer true. Another species of thinking beings now dwelled on this world, the newest one officially sanctioned by the civilization of five galaxies. Neo-dolphins. Oh, certainly the reverts, like poor Chasis, were only partly sapient anymore and Tequette had no illusions about what Dr. Mackine thought of his own mental state. Nevertheless, as stalk after stalk bent to present its fruit before the two dolphins, showing off the miniature beings within, all of them busy and apparently happy with their existence, he began to feel as if he was being wooed. Ifne's boss,' he murmured aloud, amazed at what the great machine seemed to be offering." It wants us to become part of all this. PIPO A village of small grass huts surrounded the next pool she entered. Small didn't half describe it. The creatures who emerged to swarm around the shore stared at her with wide eyes, set in skulls less than a third of normal size. There were humans and hoons, mostly, along with a few treyeki and a couple of glavers all races whose full-sized cousins lived just a few hundred kilometers away, on a stretch of Jijo's western continent called The Slope. As astonishing as she found these Lilliputians, they stared in even greater awe at her. "'I'm like a whale to them,' she realized, noting with some worry that many of them brandished spears or other weapons." She heard a chatter of worried conversation as they pointed at her long gray bulk. That meant their brains were large enough for speech. Peepo noted that the creatures' heads were out of proportion to their bodies, making the humans appear rather childlike. Until you saw the men's hairy, scarred torsos, or the women's breasts pendulous with milk for hungry babies. Their rapid jabber grew more agitated by the moment. I'd better reassure them, or risk getting harpooned, Peepo spoke, starting with Anglic, the wolfling tongue most used on Earth. She articulated the words carefully with her gene-modified blowhole. Hello, f folks How are you doing today? That got a response, but not the one she hoped for. The crowd on shore backed away hurriedly, emitting upset cries. This time she thought she made out a few words in a time-shifted dialect of Galactic Seven— "'so she tried again in that language. "'Greetings! "'I bring you news of peaceful arrival "'and friendly intentions!' "'This time the crowd went nearly crazy, "'leaping and cavorting in excitement, "'though whether it was pleasure or indignation "'seemed hard to tell at first. "'Suddenly the mob parted and went silent "'as a figure approached from a line of huts. "'It was a hoon, "'taller than average among these midgets.' He wore an elaborate headdress and cape, while the dyed throat sack under his chin flapped and vibrated to a sonorous beat. Two human assistants followed, one of them beating a drum. The rest of the villagers then did an amazing thing. They all dropped to their knees and covered their ears. Soon Peepo heard a rising murmur. "'They're humming. I do believe they're trying not to hear what the big guy is saying.' At the edge of the pool, the hoon lifted his arms and began chanting in a strange version of Galactic Six. "'Spirits of the sky, I summon thee by name, Kataranga. Spirits of the water, I beseech thy aid, Dupusian. By my knowledge of your secret names, "'I command thee to gather and surround this monster. "'Protect the people of the true way!' "'This went on for some time. "'At first Pipo felt bemused, "'as if she were watching a documentary "'about some ancient human tribe "'or the probshires of planet Horst. "'Then she began noticing something strange. "'Out of the jungle approaching on buzzing wings.' there appeared a variety of insect-like creatures. At first, just a few, then more, flying zigzag-pattern toward the chanting shaman they started gathering in a spiral-shaped swarm. Meanwhile, ripples in the pool tickled Pippo's flanks, revealing another convergence of ingathering beasts, this time swimmers, heading for the point of shore nearest the summoning hoon. I don't believe this, she thought. It was one thing for a primitive priest to invoke the forces of nature. It was quite another to sense those forces responding quickly, unambiguously, and with ominous, threatening behavior. Members of both swarms, the flyers and the swimmers, began making darting forays toward Pipot. She felt several sharp stings on her dorsal fin, and some more from below, on her ventral side. "'They're attacking me!' Realization snapped her out of a bemused state. Time to get out of here, she thought, as more of the tiny native creatures could be seen arriving from all sides. Peepo whirled about, shoving toward shore a wavelet that interrupted the yammering shaman, sending him scurrying backward with a yelp. Then, in a surge of eager strength, she sped away from there. Tiquette just when he thought he had seen enough, one of the crystal fruits descended close to the pool where he and Chassis waited, stopping only when it brushed the water almost even with their eyes. The walls vibrated for a moment, then split open. The occupant, a tiny gekek with spindly wheels on both sides of a tapered torso, rolled toward the gap, regarding the pair of dolphins with four eye stalks that waved as they peered at Tiket then, the creature spoke in a voice that sounded high-pitched, but firm, using thickly accented galactic seven. We were aware that new settlers had come to this world, but imagine our surprise to discover that this time they are swimmers, who found us before we spotted them. No summoning call had to be sent through the great egg. No special collector robots dispatched to pick up volunteers from shore. How clever of you to arrive just in time, only days and weeks before the expected moment when this universe splits asunder. Chassis panted nervously, filling the sterile chamber with rapid clicks while Taquette bit the water hard with his narrow jaw. I have no idea what you you are talking about—' he stammered in reply. The miniature Gakek twisted several eye stalks around each other. Tiquette had an impression that it was consulting or communing with some entity elsewhere. Then it rolled forward, unwinding the stalks to wave at Tiquette again. "'If an explanation is what you seek, then that is what you shall have—' Peepo. The interior of the great leviathan seemed to consist of one leaf-shrouded pool after another, in a complex maze of little waterways. Soon quite lost, Pipo doubted she would ever be able to find her way back to the thing's mouth. Most of the surrounding areas consisted of dense jungle, though there were also rocky escarpments and patches of what looked like rolling grassland. Pipo had also passed quite a few villages of the little folk. In one place, an endless series of ramps and flowing bridges had been erected through the foliage, comprising what looked like a fantastic scale-model roller-coaster interweaved amid the dwarf trees. Little K'keks could be seen zooming along this apparatus of wooden planks and vegetable fibers, swerving and teetering on flashing wheels. Pipo tried to glide past the shoreline villages innocuously, but seldom managed it without attracting some attention. Once a war-party set forth in chase after her, riding upon the backs of turtle-like creatures, shooting tiny arrows and hurling curses in quaint-sounding jargon she could barely understand. Another time, a garishly attired, Yurish warrior swooped toward her from above, straddling a flying lizard whose wings flapped gorgeously and whose mouth belched small but frightening bolts of flame. Pipo retreated overhearing the little urs continue to shout behind her, challenging the SEA MONSTER to single combat. It seemed she had entered a world full of beings who were as suspicious as they were diminished in size. Several more times shamans and priests of varying races stood at the shore, gesturing and shouting rhythmically, commanding hordes of bee-like insects to sting and pursue her until she fled beyond sight. Pipo's spirits steadily sank, until at last she arrived at a broad basin where many small boats could be seen cruising under brightly painted sails. To her surprise, this time the people aboard shouted with amazed pleasure upon spotting her, not fear or wrath. With tentative but rising hope, she followed their beckonings to the shore where, under the battlements of a magnificently ornate little castle, A delegation descended to meet her beside a wooden pier. Their apparent leader, a human wearing gray robes and a peaked hat, grinned as he gestured welcome, enunciating in an odd but lilting version of Anglic. "'Many have forgotten the tales told by the first, but we know you, O noble dolphin. You are remembered from legends passed down since the beginning.' How wonderful to have you come among us now, as the time of changes approaches. In the name of the Spirit Guides, we offer you our hospitality and many words of power. People mused on everything she had seen and heard. "'Words, eh? Words can be a good start.' She had to blow air several times before her nervous energy dispelled enough to speak. All right, then. Can you start by telling me what in Ifni's name is going on here? End of part two.
1: There you go. Again, pop over straight over to David Brin's site and Country Brin links on the front of the page. And do pop over to Julie Davis's site at Forgotten Classics. Drop her an email. Great work. Julie, thank you so much. So there you go. Starship Sova's Aura Delights show number 58 is very much put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it killed a few hours in the days travelling to work or Washing the dog or sleeping next to the missus or sleeping next to the mister. (laughs) I've enjoyed doing it. It's been great. Some great stories. Again, great stories to come. Do keep on listening in. Just as a closing little, you know, the thing about Starship Sova, I got Grant. Grant actually sent us over a little link to a little bit of a write-up, a tiny little write-up on Starship Sova, and it was by an author called Damon G. Walder. But Damien G. Waldo has like a list, like a best of year list, and actually Starship Sova was on it. And this is what Damien G. Waldo mentioned: Escape Pod continues to deliver wonderful audio fiction, and everyone is eternally grateful to Steve Ealy for his efforts in keeping it coming to us every week. But the standout podcast of the year for me is Starship Sova, with its new oral delights format, has become the absolute hub of all good in SF sphere. If you don't already get on the iTunes and get listening. Damien, what a thank you so much. That just kinda of just tickled away then, made mine dear. So, yes, Damien, thank you. And Grant, thanks for sending it over. So, Starships Over, that is it. If you want to help support Starships Over in these uncertain times, do consider the monthly donations. You know, that alone guarantees Starship will keep on going. You know, never mind the kind of Advertising and anything like that, if we can do kind of manage this together, that would be fantastic. So, do join me next week. I would just like to see you. Good night from me.
4: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week. Exciting installment of Starship Sofa. run
3: Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.